Uh, the rest of us can take your Bibles and find our way to Acts chapter 1 this morning. If you're a guest, I hope that uh, you found yourself warmly welcomed, that you're among friends. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are glad that you've chosen to gather with us. And church family, it is good to be gathered in the name of Jesus this morning. Um, I uh, had us have that last chapter of Luke read aloud for us so that we might get a better idea of some of the events that lead up into what we find in Acts. Um, Of course, we understand that Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And Acts really picks up the story from where Luke ends and carries it on. And so this morning we're going to work our way through the first portion, the first uh, part of Acts chapter 1. And this section can be organized into three different sections, uh, really verses 1 to 5, then 6 to 10, and then 11 through 14. And in these different sections of Acts 1, what we find here are a number of, of wonderful truths. And in fact, there's, there's a whole bunch in here that we're not going to unpack. You could, do, you could do individual sermons on just one verse at a time in here. But what we find overall in this section of Acts, really it can be described as the launch pad for Christianity. What are the truths and the realities that lay behind and started and motivated these Christians in the first century into the risky and courageous obedience of spreading the news of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection all around the known world? What is it that lie behind and motivated them and gave them the courage to do that? And that's what we're going to look at this morning is what is this launch pad for Christianity here in this first century? It's recorded here by Luke. And so uh, I'm just going to draw, uh, I think, four uh, truths that help us get an idea of what the launch pad of Christianity is. And my hope is that it will encourage all of us at Highlands Baptist Church that we have the same launch pad. And we have the same God who is at work in our world today as he was in first century Greco-Roman world uh, when Luke wrote this. So what comprises this launch pad of Christianity? Well, the first is the resurrection of Jesus. It's factual and historically real. (laughs) And you're like, oh, man, I'm a Christian. You already believe that. You know, why did you come on a Sunday? Well, hang in there, okay? Um, Here in Acts chapter 1, look at verse 1. I'll read aloud uh, down to verse 5. You can follow along there in your own text. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Of course, you uh, see some overlap there of what was read from Luke 24 and now what Luke writes here in the first chapter of Acts. But Acts is going to show us that what turned the Greco-Roman world upside down and spread Christianity so far and so wide and so fast, it wasn't simply because of some ideas or teachings of Jesus that were passed down from one person to the other, although that did happen, What changed everything and what spread so far and fast is that what turned the world upside down was the historic fact, the reality, the truthful reality that Jesus rose from the dead. And did you see there in Luke how you have the apostles, disciples, those that were following Jesus were in disbelief. They were troubled. They were saddened and they were in disbelief. 
that Jesus had actually risen. They had heard reports and they had heard that the woman had said this and then others went and they saw things as they, as they said they were. The tomb was empty and there were angels there. And then Jesus appears to them, right? And says, peace. <laughs> now they're, they're alarmed, right? They think this is a ghost. And he says, give me some food. And he eats it and he tells, listen, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. Touch me. And he's, what is he doing there? Well, Luke records it in, 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 in Acts 1 there that he, after suffering by many proofs, he appeared to them. And what you have here is that the Christians in Acts could not keep silent. I mean, they went through this process of doubt, of disbelief, of wrestling with the, the absurdity, right? Somebody rising from the grave. Somebody rising from the dead. That doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen. And they, they worked through that, and what happens is they became so convinced that it was true, that it was factual, that it actually happened, because it did and then what happened is they could not be silent about it. They couldn't be quiet about it. They had to tell everyone about it because Jesus is who he said he was. These earliest Christians bore witness to the historical and actual fact that Jesus rose from the grave. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. And the whole world needs to know this. And that's what they did. So these earliest Christians were convinced that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And um, Luke summarizes it in verse 3 when he says Jesus presented himself. You see that in verse 3? He presented himself alive to them, appearing to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. And so what you have here is Luke records that there was proof that Jesus rose from the grave. This wasn't just kind of a Christian myth, right? It wasn't just the, kind of this Christian um, fantasy that the Christians, who were really needy people, just needed to figure out something to kind of latch onto and, and, and carry on their hope um, after they went through such a hard time with, with the execution of Jesus. No, Jesus actually rose from the grave. And Luke, Luke records for us the proof of it. It wasn't that these early Christians were so desperate that they made up a story or they had some sort of group hallucination, which, by the way, that's not how hallucinations work. You don't have group hallucinations. You might hallucinate but you don't have a group hallucinating the same thing. And it wasn't that that was what was happening. Thomas, right? You, we recorded in John 20 how Thomas, one of the apostles, was just refusing to believe that Jesus actually rose from the grave. All right? I'm, what I'm trying to help us understand here is that um, the resurrection actually happened. And I know that, you, that most of you, I would say all of us here, if you're a member of Thailand's, you do believe this, that that is true. But it's something that happened so long ago that sometimes I wonder if we become intellectual, we, we accept it intellectually, but we haven't really embraced the, the spectacular, remarkable, astonishing reality that Jesus is alive. He rose from the grave. He is who he says he is. And everything we sung this morning is true about his life, his death, his resurrection, and that we no longer have the guilt and burden of sin anymore. Not because he was a good guy who said some good things and died, but no, he rose from the grave. And he offers to all who embrace him by faith that kind of new eternal life to enjoy God forever. Thomas, right? He refused to believe. And Jesus says, go ahead, put your, put your hands into the wounds of, of my hand and into my side. I want, Jesus wanted Thomas to be absolutely certain that he had risen from the grave. Why? Because they were going to be witnesses of it. They were going to testify to the world about this. And if this was like, well, 
I think he rose. I mean, you know, I, I was looking out the window and I saw a shadow and it kind of looked like Jesus. And, you know, I was looking in the clouds and I saw kind of a shape and it reminded me of Jesus. So I think he's, I think he's back. It wasn't like that. It wasn't. It wasn't like somebody had some bad lasagna and they had a dream and they woke up and said, I just feel like Jesus rose. In the... It wasn't like that at all. There were people who could be interviewed by other people in that first century day that were going to say, okay, I know you think this is absurd, but I saw him. I talked to him. I touched him. I had a conversation with him. We ate meals together. And it wasn't just one or two people that did this, but it was hundreds of eyewitnesses that had these experiences with the resurrected Jesus. Many convincing proofs, many eyewitness accounts attested to the validity and authenticity of the resurrection of Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, you guys are nuts. <laughs> and you could call us that, but, but here's the reality. We believe something that's true. Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus actually rose from the dead. He's alive right now and he will one day physically return and judge all. That actually happened. Despite what our opponents say, our Christian opponents and the, and the opponents of, of the day here in Acts, despite what they say, it actually happened. I had a, a neighbor once uh, who just uh, was not a Christian and uh, wasn't hostile toward Christianity but didn't believe in Christianity and really didn't really know if he believed about God either. But his critique to me as being Christian was, you Christians just have a blind faith. You guys are nuts. It's blind faith. You guys are crazy. And I objected to that by telling my, my neighbor, I said, Paul, it's not a blind faith. It's an informed faith. In Christian family, I want us to recognize that our faith in Jesus as the resurrected Messiah is not a blind faith. That's just a myth that's been handed down but it is a, an informed faith based upon the eyewitness accounts of people who gave testimony to what actually happened. And that's amazing. That's amazing. Just think about it. Jesus is alive. And I know, Christians, you've been Christians for a while, you're like, come on, that's not a newsflash. We like celebrate that every year during Easter. We sing about it every Sunday, you know, when we gather, and here you are telling us about it again. Yes, <laughs> I am. Because it's amazing. And it formed the cornerstone of the foundation of this launch pad for Christianity. What you have here is the resurrection of Jesus proves that Jesus is the only hope for the world. Not Buddha. Not Hinduism. Not Islamism. Now, these other world religions, there might be some, some truths or some good ideas found within them, but all of those originate, all of those, um, those prophets, right, are dead and buried. Christianity is not based upon some idea from some guy who's dead and buried. Christianity is based on the living Savior, Messiah, Jesus, resurrected from the grave. Which, by the way, there's all sorts of applications that can be drawn from this, right, to encourage us. Here's one that's obvious. Because Jesus has risen from the grave, as a Christian, that means this, the best is yet to come. Everything's going to be okay. It will be. And I know it's easy for us to say that in a climate-controlled auditorium, sitting on cushioned chairs, right, enjoying the benefits of modern-age, middle-class life here in world history. I know it's easy for us to say that, but it really, it really does mean that the best is yet to come and everything is going to be okay because Jesus has risen from the grave. He is king and he reigns. 
And by the way, the resurrection proves that Jesus is the only hope for the world because in him alone is eternal life. He's the only one that has risen from the grave, that has raised up, showing that he conquered death. And then Christians then could not be silent about it. So really much of Acts, all right, uh, the, the messages and the evangelism and the stories recorded in Acts really are just Luke recording the results of people who were convinced Jesus has risen from the grave. He is Messiah. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we've got to tell everybody about that. And that's what gave them the courage and the confidence for this risky obedience. Because the message they spread was not something that everyone celebrated. Every city did not say, we're so glad you told us. Thank you so much. They didn't. They had riots. They threw them in prison and beat them. They tried to kill them. And these Christians would not shut up. Even when the officials told them to shut up, stop talking about this message in Jesus' name, and the apostles said, listen, we can't be quiet. We have to tell you about the truth of who Jesus is. So here's the question for us. Much of Acts is a record about people telling other people about the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Do you? Have you? Will we? The resurrection is no less true today than it was 2,000 years ago. It's no less astonishing or real. It's no less groundbreaking and full of import for everyone around us who is lost in the tyranny of sin and looking for fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning in life in all the wrong places and carrying the guilt of their sin. Their only hope is your hope, Jesus. And he's alive. And he's a savior who delights to save sinners. So the question before us then, as we look at beginning get into Acts, is will we spread the fame of Jesus like they did? So what else do we learn in Acts 1 about the launch pad of Christianity? It's found really in verse 3 and, and then at the end of the, the book actually. It's this, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is part of this launch pad. The kingdom of God matters most. And in verse 3, you can see there in your text, it says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. And what did Jesus talk about with them? Well, Luke records it for us. He says this, and speaking about the kingdom of God. Speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus could have taught anything, right, during those 40 days that he was with them, appearing to them, giving them many convincing proofs. What did Jesus keep talking about? It was the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples still had misplaced priorities. They were still confused because you see in verse 6, and I'll read down through verse 11 here, they had something else in mind. And so in verse 6 it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, right? He's teaching them about the kingdom of God, and they ask him this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they like this kingdom idea, but they have some other expectations about the kingdom. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they're gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? <laughs> well, I mean, really? Why? 
This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I kind of chuckle about the question, why do you look up? Well, because that's where Jesus went. I mean, where would you be looking, right? Maybe it was this. Jesus had been appearing to them through these 40 days. Maybe they were wondering, is he going to reappear? But there was something unique about this disappearance of Jesus. It wasn't just immediate, but they saw him rise up and then be taken into a cloud. And and we are told in the scriptures that Jesus will return in a cloud of glory coming back. And the angels are saying, basically, why are you standing around? You've got work to do. You've got to be witnesses of all of this. But the kingdom of God and Jesus as that king is what they were going to be witnessing about. And so the disciples were absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Messiah and they were hopeful to see Israel restored. That's what they were hoping for. All right? They were hoping that they would have Israel restored to power, Roman rule and occupation overthrown. And they asked Jesus about that in verse 6. Like, Jesus, is this, is this when it's going to happen? And Jesus doesn't really even answer their question other than saying, listen, the times for that are for the Father to know. And instead, he redirects their attention to what matters most, God's kingdom, in verse 8, and how the Holy Spirit would enable and empower them to accomplish their mission to be witnesses of Jesus and his kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God refers to the rule and reign of God and was a key part of Jesus' teaching. Um, Most of you probably have the Lord's Prayer memorized, right? And what did Jesus give instruction about in that prayer? He he instructed us to be a people who pray about God's kingdom, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done, right? Right? So all through Jesus' teaching, it's recorded in the Gospels, and then here in these final days when he's with his apostles before he departs, what is he teaching them about? The kingdom of God. The kingdom. And by the way, flip to the very last chapter of Acts. Acts 28. And the, the last verse. <laughs> so here we have in the beginning of Acts, um, Jesus talking to his apostles about the kingdom of God. And at the very end of Acts, a new character, Paul, the apostle, he's under house arrest. And what does it say he does there? It says he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. (laughs) So Luke is recording for us that from the start to finish, what these people were busy about was God's kingdom. So what does that have to do with us? Well, the message of the disciples that they were spreading was not a nationalistic message of restored political power and autonomy. It was not a message about their kingdom ideals. It was a message about God's kingdom for all nations and how Jesus as Messiah was bringing God's kingdom with him for all people. And everyone needs to hear this. So I had to ask myself a question as I was studying this this week. And now I'll ask you. How much are you preoccupied each day with God's kingdom? How much are you preoccupied with your own kingdom? That convicts me. Does it convict you? I believe God intends to give us a fresh breeze of his grace here at Highlands, a refreshed joy in our mission at Highlands, our purpose as a church, by giving us a fresh vision about the primacy and importance of God's kingdom and Jesus as the resurrected king. And so in Acts 1, you see that the resurrection, the fact of the resurrection is part of this launch pad. 
The priority of God's kingdom is part of this launch pad, right? The, the apostles weren't spreading a message about national Jewish you know, um, a kingdom. They were spreading the message of Jesus as the king of God's kingdom. And third, what we find here is another part of the launch pad is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is essential for the mission of the church. In verse 5 of chapter 1, and then again in verse 8, twice, Jesus talks, Luke records, that Jesus was speaking about the Holy Spirit. In verse 8 is one of the more famous passages, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, right? It's not you will receive power when you raise up an army. It will be when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power when you get your strategy figured out. No, it's when the Holy Spirit And so Jesus tells his disciples to wait for the promise of being baptized with the Spirit in verse 5, right? You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and that Spirit power is what will enable you to engage in the risky obedience of spreading the news of Jesus. So the mission that Jesus calls them into in verse 8 is impossible to do without the power of the Spirit of God. That's what Luke wants us to understand. That everything we're going to read through the rest of Luke, especially, miraculous, amazing uh, accomplishments of these people spreading the news of Jesus. None of it would happen apart from the power of the Spirit of God. So this means that we can only be witnesses in the way that we must by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it'll be a failure to launch if we do not depend and do it in the power of the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? By the way, that's good news. That's good news. Right? We're not, um, I was trying to think of illustrations that could go with like launching rockets into space, and it's kind of cool, but I thought it would take too long. <laughs> um, but can you imagine, right? I mean, here you've got this, this rocket ready to blast off, this message of Jesus. And geez, God didn't leave his church to like figure out, now good luck launching that thing. God says, I'm going to launch it through the power of the Spirit. Now you're going to be there, ground control is going to be present, you're going to be involved, and your responsibility matters, yes. You've got to get out there and spread it. You've got to make those risky decisions to do it and the courage to do it. But God's Spirit is what's going to enable it. And that's good news. It's not up to us, ultimately. Our ability, our persuasion, our courage, our resourcefulness, it's not ultimately up to us. That should give us all hope, right? I mean, does our area here in in this Denver metro area, do they need the good news of Jesus? Do they? How are they going to hear about it? And we all start shutting down, right? Oh. Right? Hang in there, folks. God's Spirit is at work. And we're going to see in Acts how when the proclamation of Jesus is given, that God works and acts in power through that proclamation by the power of His Spirit. And that's good news. Here's the question. Do you believe that? Do we believe that? It's the power of the Spirit. Now, somebody might say, well, that's great for the apostles. They had that promise from Jesus, right? But it's not for us. I mean, that was just unique for the apostles to carry on their apostolic ministry, and we're just kind of ordinary Christians, you know, making the best of it, right? Wrong, because the Scriptures teach that all Christians have been baptized by God's Spirit. Here's the the proof of that. 1 Corinthians 12, right? Good passage just to kind of tuck in your back pocket uh, for encouragement on this. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, 
Paul says, For just as the body is one, the church is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Paul's encouraging the church in Corinth about the unity that we have of this one Lord, one faith, one baptism in the Spirit. And here's the challenge for us about our dependence on the Spirit. We might agree with that mentally, right? We might pass the theological test. We might be able to fill in that multiple choice question, but here's the the challenge. We could agree with that mentally while functionally or practically disbelieving it. So test yourself. What do you really believe this church needs in order to flourish and thrive in fulfilling our mission? Now, I know that may not be entirely a fair question because those, those answers can be complex. We do have a responsibility to spread the message. We do. But what do you ultimately depend on in your heart? In your heart of hearts, what is it that you are ultimately thinking, that's what's going to set us free and break us free and really give us momentum moving forward? Do you jump immediately to bodies and buildings and budgets or whatever else? Or, do we, or is there just kind of a holy pause on, you know, Acts shows us that the Spirit of God was essential and the, the apostles were, it was impossible for them to do it without the Spirit of God. That's, why God. that's why Jesus said, stay put until you are empowered by the Spirit so that you can be my witnesses. So test yourself. When you think about how to spread the message of Jesus to your neighbors and coworkers, family members and friends, Do you ever find courage and comfort in the fact that God's Spirit is promised to enable you to be the witness you must be? Or do you think of the people around you that need to hear the good news of Christ and think, man, there's no way I can do that. It's impossible. I have no idea what to say. I have no opportunity to do that. I'm going to look like a weird... Friends, God's Spirit, God Himself is with us, enabling us to do this. Will we believe it? We have what we need to be the witnesses we must be in Centennial and Highlands Ranch and Littleton. We do. Do we believe this? If not, here's, the, here's what's good. Acts, I, be, I am praying, will more and more convince us of that. So that as we go through this study in Acts, more and more we are going to be willing to take, make the risky choices of being gospel witnesses in, our, in the areas where we work, live, and play because we'll more and more be convinced from God and his word through the historical record of Acts from Luke that God is with us by his spirit. So, the launch pad of Christianity, the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus, the preoccupation of the priority of God's kingdom, third, the power and presence of God's spirit, and what else? There's one more. And we'll finish here. Prayer. Prayer. Christians must be devoted to prayer. Prayer is part of the launch pad of Christianity. I'll begin reading in verse 12 of Acts 1, and I'll read down through verse 14. Luke records for us that then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So about a half mile to three quarters of a mile away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room, the second story room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Was it just these apostles doing it? No. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. 
So this wasn't just an apostolic prayer meeting. This was a Christian prayer meeting. Notice how Luke records that these Christians were with one accord being devoted to prayer. All the things that Luke could have recorded about what they were doing, what stood out to him, what, what, would, what would make the historical record to describe these people having just lived through what was recorded, right? I mean, Jesus buried, crucified, buried, dead, resurrected, appearing, proving to them he's alive, and then ascending. And what do they do? What Luke records for us, of all the other things that they might have done, he records that they were devoting themselves to prayer. And I believe that matters for us. What does it mean to be devoted to prayer? Well, this term devoted is used by Mark to describe a boat. And you're probably all like scratching your heads. How in the world can a boat be devoted? Here's how. The, Jesus said, I want you to find a boat. So I'm going to teach people, but I want there to be a boat in case the crowd presses in and threatens me. I want a boat devoted that I can get into so I can keep teaching and not be pressed in by the crowd, right? The boat was devoted. It's the same term. Well, how can a person be devoted? Well, when the word is applied to a person, it means to be devoted or dedicated to a particular action and earnestly pressing themselves into that action. For instance, we would understand what it means to talk about an Olympic athlete being devoted to their sport. Right? I mean, just to get into the Olympics, you've got to be like, like the best of the best. We understand that, right? Okay? So there has to be a level of devotion to that particular pursuit in order just to get there. And so how can a person be devoted or dedicated to something? Well, what's remarkable about this idea of being devoted to prayer is that this idea is used ten times in the New Testament. Five of those occasions of being devoted refer to prayer. Three of those occasions happen in Acts. Acts chapter 1, which is what I just read, verse 14. Another occasion Luke records in Acts chapter 2, it says they were continually devoting themselves to there was a, the apostles' doctrine, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. There it is again. And then in Acts 6, you have the apostles that said, we must devote ourselves of everything else. We need to make sure that we are devoted to the ministry of the word and prayer. And then there's another reference outside of Acts in Colossians chapter 4 and in Romans chapter 12. So what does all of this mean? This means that in the New Testament, Christians our normal Christianity is described as this, being devoted to prayer. Now, that convicts me. Does it convict you? Normal Christianity, recorded in Acts, is people who are devoted to prayer. So the question is, are we devoted to prayer? What would it look like if we were? So let's think about it some more, right? Being devoted to prayer doesn't mean that all we do, the only thing we do is prayer. It doesn't mean that. Uh, just as much as being a husband, being a, devoted to his wife, doesn't mean that all the husband does is just spend time with his wife. Of course, we understand that a husband's devotion to his wife is going to profoundly affect his life and cause him to give himself to her in many different ways. And the same is true for being devoted to prayer. Now, being devoted to prayer means that there's going to be praying that looks like devotion to prayer. So it's not going to look the same for everyone. And here's the danger. I don't want to 
you're saying, okay, now what does that mean? I have to pray, what, an hour? Does that mean I'm devoted? Two hours? Now am I devoted? Four hours? Now am I devoted? Okay, right? I'm not going to do that. It's going to look different for all of us because we're all in different phases of life and circumstances and situations and devotion is going to show up differently in each of those expressions. You're going to have to work that out. But we as a church, to be living in accord with what we see here recorded in Acts, we're going to need to be a people who are devoted to prayer. Otherwise, we will not be able to be the witnesses we must be. So, test yourself. Do you have a pattern of prayer, a relationship with prayer, that can fairly or reasonably be identified as devoted? So, think of it, all right? For example, if we only pray during crisis in our life, that's probably not being devoted to prayer, right? Not devoted, That doesn't mean we don't pray. Sure, we pray. There's a crisis. But are we devoted to prayer? Maybe during the crisis we are, right? (laughs) Isn't that how it works? Right? A crisis comes in and we realize God's right. We can't do this on our own. We start praying, right? Now we're devoted. Or maybe you pray at mealtimes. Well, there's a pattern there, but are we really thinking that praying at dinnertime means you're devoted to prayer? If that's that's what we think, well, man, I, I prayed before a meal last time. I'm devoted to prayer. Really? Or maybe you say, well, I kind of do, now I lay me down to sleep, you know, as I go to bed. Again, this hit and miss, help me, Lord, you know, as I try to find a parking spot. Lord, please let all the lights be green so I don't not late for my appointment. Is that really devoted to prayer? I, I mean, I hope we can kind of smile at ourselves, right, and laugh. Okay, yeah, no, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be praying in those ways. All those are good ways. Praying at night is good, right? Again, I'm not trying to, to like prescribe a list of what this is going to look like. We need to think through this. Those prayers are good, right? But what would it look like for us to be devoted? Like, For instance, if somebody who is not a member of Highlands Baptist Church were to walk in and gather with us from week to week to week to week, what would they need to see or experience to walk away and say, those people are devoted to prayer? What would they hear us talk about How would we be behaving together? What would that look like? And we're going to see in more detail as we read through Acts how Luke reminds his readers, oh yeah, by the way, these people, they keep praying. They keep praying. They keep praying. While they're in prison, they pray. Before they're in prison, they pray. When they get out of prison, they pray. While somebody else is in prison, they pray for that person to get out of prison. They go into a city, they pray. They're leaving a city, they pray. They gather together to report about how God has used their ministry of being witnesses and they pray. It's like obnoxious, right? (laughs) No, they're devoted to prayer. Why? Because they recognize that the witnesses that they must be could only be done through the power of God's Spirit and so they prayed. So what are we going to do with all of this? I'll ask the music team to come up and get ready to lead us in our final song. What should we do? Well, I'm trusting that there are some numerous applications that God's Spirit has already brought to your mind. But here's just a quick review. Let's be encouraged, church. Let's be encouraged. The launch pad of Christianity is built by God on his resurrection through the the priority of God's kingdom with the power of God's presence and our obedience in prayerful dependence. So be encouraged. And second, let's be obedient. Let's pray for that. 
How is God calling you to change your life this week, your schedule, your expectations of church, your commitments to church, to the mission God has given us as a church family? How is God calling you to change that so, you, so we can all be active in the commission that God has given us of being witnesses? Let's make it practical. What can you do, what can we do this week to be devoted to prayer? Think about that. Who might you ask to join you and help you in that? What can you do this week to remind yourself of the priority of God's kingdom? What can you do? And finally, let's be hopeful, church. Let's be hopeful. God has promised the power and presence of himself to enable his church to be witnesses of Jesus. And that is true for us. So be hopeful. I believe that there are people where we work, live, and play that God wants to save. Do you believe that? Pray that we will believe that. And trust that God intends and plans to save people through our faithful obedience of being his witnesses. That we might see more and more join in to the joy of heaven when one sinner repents and believes, right? There's joy in heaven. That we would share in experiencing that joy ourselves as we are witnesses of a resurrected Messiah. Let's pray.